Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a great Friday morning show for you, including Ottawa cracks down on Americans heading to Alaska. BC bans travel to Haida Gwaii. These are brand new COVID-19 travel restrictions in our province. So let's start right there with my guest, BC Solicitor General Mike Farnworth. He is also the Minister of Public Safety. Minister, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Good morning. Good morning to you. Thanks for doing it. Uh, let's start with the Canada-U.S. border restrictions introduced yep. yesterday by, by Ottawa. I know this has been a priority for the B.C. government as well. How is this going to work and how will it be enforced? Uh, well, what is going to happen is that uh, travel uh, will be restricted to three entry points uh, in British Columbia. So they will be Abbotsford, um, Osorius, and then Kingsgate over in the Kootenays. Uh, people who are transiting to Alaska are going to be required to um, get a, a tag, which will have to be placed in the car. They are going to have to take the direct route up to Alaska. They're going to have to have that tag with the, in the car at all times. They're not going to be able to stop at uh, national parks or tourist sites. Um, they have to, uh, when they go for gas, they have to, uh, to, uh, to pay at the pump. Uh, use drive-through uh, and uh, and have minimal uh, uh, stopping. When they get to uh, the border with Alaska, they're going to have to uh, present that tag to them so they'll be able to because it'll be time verified uh, from when they enter Canada to when they leave uh, to show that they have taken uh, the, the the most uh, the most direct route. What what happens? How- significant. Sorry. Yeah, well, how long do they have to drive through the province and to get to Alaska? I mean, if if, uh, if, if more than several days go by, do the, what happens then? Do officials go start searching for them? Well, the, the two things uh, will happen. First off, they have uh, a, there's a minimum of three days. I think it's between three 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 to five days to actually get up there, uh, depending on 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 which which point you enter, because there's also points in in Alberta and sorry, or sorry, uh, in Alberta and Saskatchewan. Um, if you don't uh, and, and, and you don't abide by the, the terms, then there are significant fines of between 750000 and a $1 million. Uh, so that comes with significant uh, uh, financial penalties. Uh, and that you have to uh, present it at that border point uh, at uh, Yukon and uh, Alaska. So you're not going to be able to sort of do the, uh, the, the detour scenic route through the province. It has to be the most direct route. Right. This is, I know, has been a priority, for, especially for Premier John Horgan, who has spoken out about yep. it uh, several times in the last few weeks. Why is this uh, an important measure, in your opinion? Uh, because we have we had started to see, uh, you know, uh, people coming up from the state saying that they were going to Alaska, uh, and uh, you know, they're ending up in uh, in you know, in Port Renfrew or you know, Port Hope, Ontario, uh, and that. Uh, they were they were they were violating what is um, uh, an agreement with the United States in order to for, for, for people to be able to get to by land to Alaska by going through Canada. 
this concern had been raised by the premier. It was something he identified. Uh, we raised it uh, at, uh, with the ministerial level. It's been raised with the, with the prime minister and the feds and other provinces yeah. have been have been on this as well. Yukon in particular, who've been very concerned uh, from their border uh, with Alaska. Uh, and uh, the federal government said they were going to act on it, and they did, and we're pleased with the uh, the response we've uh, we've had from them. Speaking of Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth, the, the plan as it was rolled out by Ottawa yesterday said that these Alaska-bound travelers will be issued a hang tag to put on their rearview mirror to indicate that they're in transit to Alaska. What is to prevent an American visitor from just taking that off their rearview mirror and going on vacay? Well, the, the issue is, is it has now been registered at the uh, at the border, yeah. uh, and so it's been registered with the uh, Canada Border Services Agency. So they are going to have to uh, put that back. Uh, they have to hand that back in, and when they cross the border, there will be a record of the fact that they have entered Canada, uh, and so uh, they would have uh, they would face uh, uh, significant uh, financial penalties. Uh, prior to these these new penalties coming in place, we already were starting to see uh, um, uh, fines being leveled. I know there was, I think, uh, a number of cases uh, who were starting to see reports of where people uh, were clearly violating uh, and were, uh, were, were being yeah. fined. And now what we're seeing is is significantly uh, stiffer penalties. Right. The, the RCMP told CTV yesterday that they had written up six infraction tickets in British Columbia recently for Americans being improperly in Canada and breaking the Federal Quarantine Act. And they said that the, the fine was $1,000, which is that's, to me is like a slap on the wrist. And that's why these new, <clears throat> these new financial penalties of between $750,000 million are, uh, are significant, uh, significant fines. Okay, speaking of public safety, Minister Mike Farnworth, let's talk about Haida Gwaii now. You announced yesterday some extraordinary travel restrictions there mm-hmm. for people going to the archipelago of, of Haida Gwaii. Uh, tell me how that is going to work. Um, so right now, um, we have had a, an initial outbreak uh, of COVID-19 on Haida Gwaii. There were 13 cases and one an additional case and then another six cases. Uh, so we have restricted all but uh, uh, a, a essential travel uh, to uh, the Haida Gwaii archipelago. Um, it's been done on the advice of uh, public health uh, and working with the, uh, the communities on Haida Gwaii. It's based on, on a similar approach that we took when we had an outbreak in Alert Bay on Cormorant Island. In that case, we're just dealing with one community. In this case, on Haida Gwaii, you're dealing with a number of communities. So that's why we have to put in place the, 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 the provincial uh, uh, order to deal with the, uh, with the whole island. Um, and that uh, it, will, it will be in place um, for uh, as long as 28 days of no cases. So once the order is in place, uh, if there are no new cases for 28 days, then the order would be lifted. How about people who don't live on the on the uh, Haida Gwaii Islands and they're on the islands right now? Are they required to leave? No, um, what they they're not required uh, 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 to leave. So what this does is, and, and and there would still be travel in terms of, of essential services and essential goods, and there's a list um, of that of that in place. Um, and then uh, people who feel they do have a need to go there, that then there would there's a, a a permit process on which that would be would be assessed. But the reality is this, that at this point in time, uh, given um, um, what we've seen in terms of, 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 the, of, of an outbreak on there, that this is the most effective way 
to deal with it. Uh, and yeah. it was the approach that was taken uh, on in the Alert Bay outbreak, which uh, was brought under control uh, fairly quickly. Okay, is that a difficult decision for you to make, given that Canadians have a constitutionally protected right to mobility rights to move around the country, move around within their province, and now you're telling people they can't go to a certain part of the province? Is, is that a... These yeah, are never ahead. easy decisions. These are never easy decisions, and they're not ones that um, you know that, that that we make or take lightly. Um, what we're trying to do, as as in as in all of this whole pandemic, is to is to make decisions based on medical advice, make decisions on the on the on the interests of the of the health of of, of, of British Columbians, um, and at the same time also make it clear that look, there there are. Um, you know, procedures uh, in place that, that if people do feel that they are able to go, that, that they can do that. In this case, there's a permanent place. There's a list of, of essential services. I mean, that's been something that we put in place, for example, for the province as a whole at the start of the outbreak. But, but these are not easy decisions to make. And, and uh, you know, uh, we don't take them lightly. All right. You have had a very busy week. You had an, another uh, another cabinet order this week on changing the rules around assured loading on 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 bc ferries uh, you had been giving priority to people returning to their primary residence so locals getting prime primary access on on uh, to ferries this is going to be an extraordinarily busy weekend on the ferries with a long weekend coming up of course that that rule has now been dropped by your, your order why did you do that um there's been considerable challenges uh with that order and in trying to enforce that order um and so what has been done is to say, okay, um, uh, the, the priority is for essential goods, which needs to go in, and the priority will be uh, individuals who are getting uh, medical, uh, med- uh, medical treatment uh, and, 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 and attention needed. And that, that um, would be, uh, that, that's where the, the, the priority needs to be. And then <coughs> BC Ferries is the ferry corporation. Um, is 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 going to have to is which they have always done is manage uh, that loading in terms of the uh, uh, of the ferries, um, but uh, it was that's why that was taken. Okay, so in other words, now the, the the rule will be if you show up at a ferry terminal, you will not be allowed to say, "Look, I live on Vancouver Island, so I should be able to cut to the front of the line and get on this ferry," or "I live in the Sunshine Coast, so I should get to go on first to get there." Ahead of all these other people waiting for me, that won't be that won't be allowed anymore. Correct? That is correct. Uh, yeah. What we've seen is there were too many there were too many issues and too many problems uh, and too many conflicts arising of the, out of the way things were structured. Uh, and yeah. so, in order to, to to eliminate those problems, it said, "Look, um, we can't uh, have that uh, that priority loading at, at this point." Uh, what priority loading there is needs to be for essential services, essential goods. Uh, and for people with uh, with medical with uh, with with uh, medical issues that need to be addressed, right. uh, such as we saw the other day of the case uh, of, of, of I think two young people who needed uh, uh, kidney treatment uh, in uh, in Vancouver. They will still get priority. People in that category. Yeah. Yes. Right. Minister, thank you for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about ICBC and your auto insurance now. This is a topic we addressed earlier this week on the show, specifically whether you should get a rebate 
from ICBC during the COVID-19 pandemic. The accident rate in British Columbia has gone down as a result of fewer people driving uh, during the pandemic. ICBC is saving some money as a result. Should that money flow back to you as a BC driver? Have a listen to this report from Global News reporter Richard Zussman. Fewer cars, fewer crashes, and that's having an impact on ICBC. There's a silver lining to this really tragic and terrible situation, which is that accidents are down. So I've asked for ICBC to look at those trends and to provide a report back to government. It's unclear how much savings there could be for the public insurer. But unlike in the United States, where all state insurance has refunded about 15% of premiums, the savings here haven't been passed on. ICBC and the government should consider offering refunds or at the very least some sort of clawback in regards to the rates that we're paying presently. Okay, that last voice you heard there, Liberal MLA Jazz Johal, who was my guest on the show yesterday, he has got a private member's bill in the B.C. legislature that would require and force ICBC to give drivers a pandemic rebate. Let's talk about that right now. And also looming no-fault auto insurance coming to British Columbia. My guest is Aaron Sutherland from the Insurance Bureau of Canada. They represent private insurance companies in the country. Aaron, it's nice to have you back on. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, what do you think about um, the rebate? I know you're going to say, sure, ICBC should give drivers a rebate because other, other provinces are doing the same thing, other insurance companies are doing the same thing. Can you give me an update on that? Like, how many, in other jurisdictions, are drivers actually getting, you know, cash in their claw, money in their pocket, rebates from insurance companies? Unequivocally, yes. Uh, in other provinces, look, like, everywhere across the country and across North America, claims are down. Uh, people are driving less. You know, we're working from home. Uh, and, you know, accidents are reduced, claims costs are down, insurers are saving money, and they believe driver's premiums should reflect that. And so across the country, on average, private insurance companies have returned about $280 uh, to drivers because they're driving less. ICBC is one of the only insurance companies left in this country that has yet to do the same. Uh, and it's high time they did. And while there's this ambiguity and question around ICBC's finances, the only question really is, is how many hundreds of millions of dollars they are saving in reduced claims costs due to the pandemic, and if and when they will ever pass those savings on to their customers. Okay, IC, ICBC had earlier reported, this is going back a couple of few months now, that they had saved $158 million bucks from reduced crashes and reduced claims during the pandemic. I have not heard an updated number on how much they're saving. But at the same time, they're saying there are opposite cost pressures on them because a lot of people canceled their auto insurance because they're not maybe they're not working or their hours at work have been cut back. So they canceled their auto insurance, so they've lost their job. And they're losing money that way from premiums. They also say they've taken a bath on their investment portfolio with some of the stock market turmoil we've seen. Is that an adequate explanation for not giving a rebate? Well, I don't think so because to that to that degree, every insurance company in the in the country is dealing with the same pressures on their investment portfolio. And I think we should be clear: those pressures came at a point in time, right? They're talking about uh, a picture back in April of their investment portfolio, uh, but we've all seen the stock market rebound uh, quite incredibly uh, following this. And so, I really question if that. Um, if that investment loss was a point in time versus if they're still seeing the effects of that today. But regardless, all insurance companies are dealing with customers canceling their policies. All insurance companies are dealing with the same investment market um, as well. But what's unequivocal is is claims are down substantially. 
Um, costs to ICBC are down substantially. They are saving hundreds of millions of dollars during this pandemic, but they are passing zero onto their customers. And that, frankly, is wrong. And if drivers had a choice, if they could take their business elsewhere because they didn't like the service ICBC was giving them, that would force ICBC to give them rebates, just like it would force ICBC to better serve its customers in general. We're seeing that in other provinces. We're not seeing it here in BC because of ICBC's monopoly. Okay, I think it's a really good point to point out that other insurance companies are facing similar pressures during this COVID-19 pandemic. People are canceling their insurance. They're losing money because of this on their investments. I sort of get that, but not all other insurance companies have got a financial dumpster fire like ICBC has got, as David Eby famously described it, where they were losing a billion bucks a year, right? I mean, other insurance companies were not bleeding losses like that, were they? No, but I mean, you're really not making the case for continuing with ICBC and its monopoly in the first place. Well, no, but I mean, I'm, what I'm saying is how can they afford to give people a rebate if they've been losing billion, a billion bucks a year? Well, you know, we, we've heard this year they say that they're going to they, they're going to turn things around. And so everything yeah. else considered, if the big change is the reduction in claims, they should be passing those savings on to customers. Uh, you know, I suspect we're going to see this September that ICBC's investment portfolio has recovered, and I would strongly suspect that ICBC is going to be in a very good financial position uh, very soon because of uh, the reduction in claims. And I would really question that if we don't see them pass those savings on to their customers, uh, frankly, that is a failing of our government auto insurer. And I would really, I think it just should lead to more questions of why is it that British Columbians must purchase their auto insurance from the government? We're, you know, we're one of very few jurisdictions in North America where that is the requirement. Uh, you would think you would only do that to make sure that, you know, ICBC, they have its monopoly, so they take care of you in your time of need. But this whole rebate question really, really calls that into calls that into question. It right. says, you know, if, if they're not here for us when we need them, why are they here at all? Okay. And okay. it's not about saying we have to get rid of ICBC, but at the very least, we should be letting drivers shop around to find the best company that treats them with the respect they deserve. I think people do deserve some more choice, for sure. Let me let me ask you this, though. Speaking to Aaron Sutherland, Insurance Bureau of Canada, they represent the private insurance companies. We have got... I, here's what I think is going on. I think there's politics going on. It, the, the There's an election scheduled next fall. Premier John Horgan has made some interesting comments and musing out loud about the possibility of an earlier snap election, but the election right now is scheduled for the fall of 2021. I think they're trying to keep their powder dry. They don't want to give people a rebate now. They want to give people a rebate right before an election. And I think that's what's going on. I think probably people will get a break on their auto insurance next year, just when it's time to go to the vote. And the government, the government has said that they're bringing in no-fault auto insurance that's going to save them a ton of money because they're going to cut all these greedy lawyers out of the mix, and they're going to save so much money from that that they'll be able to cut your auto insurance by 20%. Give me your take on no-fault auto insurance, because I remember talking to you a while, some time ago, and you said, you're, as far as private insurance companies go, you're basically agnostic on the issue of no-fault auto insurance, but I believe now you're opposed to no-fault in BC. Is that right? Uh, so, so one on the the election question and yeah. rebates. I yeah. think you hit the nail on the head. I think government's keeping their powder dry, and I think before the next election, you're going to see rebates, and they want you to forget that you got nothing this year, and they're going to be able to say during the election, "Look, we solved the ICBC dumpster fire. Look at their financial position today." But the financial position, uh, you know, le- leading up to the next election, is going to be solved because they gave nothing back to you during the COVID crisis when they saw all the savings, and they're going to want you to forget that. 
Uh, as for no fault overall, you know, <laughs> what I would suggest is this. Um, you can put a box around, or my industry would believe that you can put a box around and you can define the kind of benefits people need to recover from injuries they're going to recover from. So if you're getting whiplash, sprains, strains, things like that, you should be able to say, okay, here's what you're entitled to. Um, here's what you likely need to recover. Now go and get it. The concern with no fault for those with more serious injuries or those with catastrophic injuries for whom it's very difficult to put a box around today and say, you know, if you're dealing with a spinal cord injury, here is what you need. Here is what you get. End of story. No insurance company, you know, can really adequately prescribe that. And that's what we would question is, is does no fault really serve the best interests of drivers over the long term if they're seriously injured? And that's where we believe if you're seriously injured, you still need some legal recourse that you can access that if you're not feeling you're getting the benefits you need to recover, uh, you can seek legal recourse to access what you need. Under no fault, that is taken away from you. And it's ICBC is the one that decides what you need and what you get if you're catastrophically injured. And that is something we fundamentally disagree with. Okay, so, okay. okay, on that final point you just made there, because I think this is kind of crucial to the whole no-fault auto insurance debate in British Columbia. Let's say you are seriously injured in a car crash. I guess the fear from some people is that ICBC will not take care of you. Uh, they, You will not get a fair settlement from ICBC. And that's why some people would like to still have the right and ability to hire a lawyer to go to court and sue. I put this to David Eby the other day. He was on the show a few days ago. And he said, look, if you are injured in a car crash, it's not ICBC that's going to decide the, the treatment that you need or the compensation that you require if you can't go to work, for example. It's going to be your doctor, not ICBC, your doctor. And I want to play this for you and get your get your take on it. This is uh, David Eby, the minister responsible for ICBC, on this precise point the other day. Uh, the safeguards include the fact that it's not ICBC who decides what benefits you get or not. It's it's your doctor, it's your physician, your healthcare professional uh, that says, look, this person can't work, or this person needs this or this in terms of rehabilitation. Uh, their occupational therapist or someone else, and then ICBC needs to provide that benefit. And if they don't, then you can go to the Civil Resolution Tribunal and force them to. What do you think of that? Are you saying you don't believe that, or what's your take? Look, we're kind of splitting hairs here, but I think we're splitting them in the wrong direction. Yes, your doctor will decide what kind of treatments you need, but ICBC is going to decide how much of that you get. So the doctor can say, you know, you need physio, you need chiropractic, you need this, you need that. ICBC decides how many treatments you get. And that's where the savings come from, is they bring in strict limits on what you actually receive. So the doctor can prescribe anything, but ICBC holds final authority over what it will be you, you what you will actually get. And that's where no-fault savings come from. Yes, there's some savings from eliminating lawyers. I think they're going to save half a, half a billion dollars, but they're going to save a billion dollars in reduced benefits directly to customers. That's where most of the savings come from. They say we're basing this on Saskatchewan and Manitoba. Look at how they work out there. Uh, there are strict limits on the number of, you know, again, chiropractic, physio, treatments like that that you will mm. receive. And to be honest, they also, in those provinces, pay far less per treatment. So it's something like $40 in Saskatchewan that you would get you would get for a chiropractic treatment versus 80 something dollars here in BC today. So we've got to pay close attention, and we're still waiting on these details, to how many uh, treatments you'll be entitled to how, per injury and how yeah. much ICBC is willing to pay for each of those. That's, it's those individual limits. That's where the rubber hits the road, and that's where those savings come because there's very strict benefits and okay. limits on what you will actually receive. 
All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the COVID-19 pandemic now and as it affects uh, BC businesses and workplaces in our province now. We all know that we are under the BC restart plan here right now in phase three of the restart plan for getting our economy going again. Uh, businesses allowed to operate, but uh, in many cases under strict conditions. So for example, uh, a restaurant, for example, you'd have to, they're required to have a COVID-19 safety plan that is uh, displayed in the workplace and on their website. There are rules about how businesses can operate. What if you go to a workplace or a business and you see something that you think is not in compliance with the COVID-19 rules? Well, you can submit a complaint to WorkSafe BC and they can do an inspection of that workplace. Let me introduce you to a very interesting guy now, Al Johnson. He is the head of prevention services at Workplace BC or WorkSafe BC, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on. My pleasure, Mike. Good morning. Thanks for doing this. Tell me a little bit about your job there. What are your uh, when it comes to COVID-19? What do you guys do there? Well, at, at, at WorkSafe BC, we're in the business of injury and disease prevention. We want every worker to go home safely at the end of the day, free of injury and disease, no matter what that incident might happen, what incident might happen at the workplace to cause that. COVID-19 is a, a new risk in the workplace, a, a new hazard, if you will, but it needs to be managed the same as any other health and safety hazard. So employers need to take it seriously. They need to involve their workers and they need to develop a safety plan for COVID-19. And you talked about that in your introduction. And so right. we are out there to hold them to that obligation, hold them to that responsibility and uh, work with them to see them succeed okay so let's say someone's you see something like let's say i go to a restaurant or i go to some other place of business and i see something that i think is is not following the rules or is risky for the spread of the virus i can then lodge a complaint against that business is that correct you certainly can. Um, you know, again, WorkSafe BC, we do have a prevention information line that operates 24-7. And uh, for the most part, we're getting a lot of questions and inquiries. We've had close to 13,000 inquiries come to, uh, to that line uh, in the last few months. And wow. most of those are questions. Most of those are questions from employers and workers saying, how do we do this? What do we do? What are the details? We've looked at the guidance material on your website. We've looked at the guidelines. We've put together a plan, but we want to talk to you about it. Other people call in and say, we just don't feel safe in the workplace. Uh, workers have the right to refuse unsafe work. In fact, we say it's a responsibility for them to refuse unsafe work if they don't feel safe. They can, we encourage them to talk to their employer and work those things out. But if they can't, they can call us and we can get involved. Okay. Do you find that you're getting more phone calls as we open up the economy more under BC's restart plan? We are getting more phone calls. Our people are very busy in, in addressing those calls. Uh, you know, again, it's just COVID-19 is, is, is new. It's, it's novel. It's not well understood. Uh, you know, um, the, the, the guidelines and the best practices for prevention of exposure are not well understood by everyone. And so people are inquisitive. They want, they want to ask questions. They want to get the answers. Um, again, our materials, we can't be in every work site. Uh, we can't dictate what an employer needs to do specifically in their work site, but we can give them the, the guidance and the goalposts, if you will, the concepts that they can then take and, and apply to their work site specifically in a specific manner to address issues. 
Okay, I'm speaking to Al Johnson. He is the head of prevention services at WorkSafe BC. So I've been checking out your website, and I, I see that it's officially known as a prohibited action complaint. So let's say I see something that I believe is dangerous or not following the COVID-19 rules. I can file one of those complaints. What, what do you guys do then? Do you follow up on that complaint? Do you do an investigation or an inspection of the work site? It may be all of that, Mike. Uh, we typically, we in fact, our mandate is to follow up on all calls that come in. Um, it may be something that can be addressed directly uh, between the caller and one of our, our staff talking to that person and, and putting them at ease or addressing their questions. Uh, if it's more serious than that and, and we need to uh, make a worksite visit, then what we have is, is a response type, uh, a triage and then a response type uh, process in place so that uh, our officers would get an action request no matter where they are around the province because we have officers everywhere in the province. Uh, that officer would get an action request and they would respond to that particular issue. That may include a site visit, often it does, and we go and we talk and talk to the workers, talk to the employer and try to work things out and, and uh, make those improvements and address the issue. How many inspections have you done for COVID-19? With respect to inspections specifically, we've done over 14,000 inspections in various sectors uh, across the province, and this includes Phase 1, 2, and 3. We continue to do COVID safety inspections. Um, Obviously, uh, there are a lot of health and safety issues in BC workplaces that we need to inspect to, uh, and and we're trying to balance the work that we do to focus on those serious uh, potential injuries, those serious issues in workplaces like falls from elevation in construction uh, and and, uh, the like. Um, But COVID-19 has certainly commanded our attention. It's a risk that needs to be managed, a hazard that needs to be managed in every workplace. And we're out there working uh, collectively with employers and workers to do that. Okay, 14,000 site inspections. That's a lot. Now, what happens if a a WorkSafe BC inspector goes to a a workplace and sees something that is clearly against the rules under the COVID-19 plan? What happens then? Do you just give the, just give the people the talking to or do you give them some suggestions or can you actually have some enforcement powers and force them to clean up we, their we, act? We do all of those things. So we're in the business of education, consultation and enforcement. We very much realize and, and understand uh, our mandate as the regulator in the province. We want to uh, catch them doing it right when it comes to COVID safety. That's kind of our approach to start with. We want to help them out. We want to offer assistance directly bottom line is they need to have a solid COVID safety plan in place and it needs to be working and as we show up we will ask about that we will at our officers discretion they will determine whether there's compliance to that or not if the employer needs what shall I say motivation uh, and they're not going to do things voluntarily or heed some of our direction voluntarily then orders will be written and if those orders are not complied with like any order for a health and safety violation in the workplace we can take that further with a penalty or a a monetary fine. How many orders have been written? Out of those 14,000 approximate inspections, we've only written 400 orders. So you can see from that that for the most part, employers are doing it right, and that's a good thing. Uh, Employers are are doing their best, working hard to get COVID safety plans in place and to manage any potential exposure to reduce the risk, putting those engineering controls like barriers in place, uh, using that PPE, uh, maintaining cleanliness and hygiene, trying to control, quote-unquote, people traffic 
traffic in those places where they interact with the public, like restaurants and hotels and the like, uh, grocery stores. So they're doing a lot of things right, uh, and it would be indicative of the of the number of orders we've written. Uh, we've written 400 times. We've had to say you'd need to do something more, and our officer felt that they needed to put it in writing to direct them. We follow up right. on those orders to ensure compliance happens. Okay, so 400 enforcement orders written, and then you do a follow-up inspection, I imagine, to make sure the orders have been followed, right? What, what happens if the order is not followed? If the order is not followed, you know, again, our, our officers can repeat that order uh, through di- additional conversation, uh, but typically it moves into the area of if somebody is not complying and there's continued non-compliance, we go down the road of a penalty, which will be uh, uh, is a monetary fine, which is put onto that particular employer in order to motivate them further to uh, wow. to do what they need to do. It's all about, again, you know, uh, meeting their obligation. The employer under our regulation and act has the responsibility to establish and maintain a healthy and safe work site for all of their workers, for all of the hazards and issues that might be at their work site. And today, COVID seems, obviously, it's everywhere. It's in every work site or could be in every work site. So work sites, today that that haven't managed uh, health and safety and it's new to them, Uh, typically lower risk industries like barbershops and hair salons, uh, they they are managing health and safety today uh, because it's, it's right up front and COVID is the issue. Okay, speaking to Al Johnson from WorkSafe BC, let's say you uh, you write an enforcement order and the enforcement order is not being implemented or followed. You mentioned there are penalties. What is the what are the potential penalties? Like how much is the fine? Um, the, the, the maximum penalty is just over $600,000, according to our, uh, our statute. But the penalties are based on the size of the employer's payroll and the, uh, the level of risk. So there's a, there's a calculation that goes into it based on payroll, and uh, it's, a, it's a, typically a percentage of payroll. Uh, but we don't want to uh, penalize people. We don't want to uh, issue penalties. We want them to do things right, right off the bat. Yeah. We want to encourage them to go to our website, and for the most part, that's what employers have been doing. They've been using the materials that we've worked with others. They've been going to their health and safety association and interacting and getting information there and working hard to put that information in play as a COVID safety plan with their workers to keep everybody safe. Can you shut a business down? We certainly can. Our officers do shut businesses down, do shut down portions of businesses, again, on a variety of risks. So, you know, the most, uh, the easiest example is a a roofer who's up on the top of a a house doing re-roofing and they're not wearing fall protection. Immediately, our officers would show up and say, down off the roof, you're shut down for now until you can get some fall protection in place. We can do the same thing with all hazards in the workplace. We haven't had to shut down any business at this point in time with respect to COVID issues. What about, okay, so no businesses have been shut down because of COVID infractions. What about a fine? Has, has any employer or business been fined for COVID infractions in BC? We have not fined any employer for COVID infractions at this point. Uh, what we're finding is that uh, as the COVID safety plans were developed, uh, let's say if 
uh, in the weeks gone by. We're finding now that employers need to remain vigilant. They need to stay true to their plan. They need to uh, look at their plan and and, uh, not just accept it for what it was a few weeks ago, but work on it. It, Things are evolving. Information is evolving. Uh, Practices are evolving. Uh, What worked two weeks ago or what you thought might work two weeks ago isn't working as well as you thought it would. So we're encouraging employers that these plans need to be dynamic. They need to evolve. They need to pay attention to them, modify them, tweak them if they need to, and make sure they're applied. Okay, I guess it doesn't surprise me that um, in some ways that an employer who gets a visit from a WorkSafe BC inspector, I mean, that's kind of a, a bad day at the office, I suppose, in some ways, if that happens. And if they receive an enforcement order, nobody running a business wants to be fined. Nobody wants to be shut down. So obviously, there's a lot of motivation there to follow the rules and clean up their act. So I, I can understand that. But when you have 14,000 inspections and there has not been a single business shut down and there's not been a single uh, fine issued, what should the public take away from that? That is, like, Are you guys being tough enough? here against uh, people who are breaking the rules? Well, I, th- I think we are, absolutely. I think that it demonstrates that uh, people are, uh, employers in this province are taking COVID, COVID-19 safety seriously. Right. Uh, there's also the interaction between ourselves and public health. So again, our mandate is worker health and safety to ensure that the workers of the province are protected from COVID-19 uh, as the employer has that obligation to do so. Uh, and then when it comes to the public, that's the realm of public health. And so yeah. we work closely with public health. Uh, our focus is on worker safety. Their focus is on generally public safety. Okay, last question for you. If someone does have a concern about a workplace or a business they've been to, they feel like the COVID-19 rules are not being followed, and they want to submit a complaint to WorkSafe, do they do that online on your website? They can go to our website. Certainly, uh, the, the, the best way to do it is to phone our information line, and, and it's a toll-free line 24-7. We respond to all of those issues. Um, you know, again, we would encourage, if it's the public that doesn't uh, that feels something's not right in a workplace or an establishment or at a restaurant that they go to, talk to the restaurant people first. Don't go okay. immediately and phone WorkSafe BC. This is about we all have a part to play in COVID safety uh, at BC workplaces uh, and, and BC establishment. So we're encouraging good communication. You know, just ask some questions. Maybe you'll get your questions answered. And there's good reason why something is happening that you think may not be appropriate or or right or whatever the case may be. But indeed, if they need more information, our information line is open and available 1-888-621-7233. Thanks for coming on. You bet, Mike. All the best.